the whole interesting thought. I, I want to follow that along a little bit. Maybe we'll come back to it. The thought about, uh, is it bad to have ego involved? Maybe it's one of the stepping places along the way that the sense of I am generous gives you such a good feeling. Uh, it's hard for me sometimes to figure out what what's the difference between ego uh, that's not such a great thing about look at me, I'm terrific, and um, um, what's the difference between pride and delight in terms of, oh, I'm proud of myself, I did such a great thing, or delight about, look at that, I saw through uh, my own, um, all my own temptations to do otherwise, and I did it this way. That's a wonderful thing. How can you delight in yourself? To think about that. I tell you what I want to talk about today and for the next several weeks. So the, uh, it's a topic that I started to talk about last year. You'll recognize it. And I'm back thinking about it again because I'm trying to think this through really clearly. So I want to talk to you in a series of Wednesday mornings and see if I can um, parse it out more clearly as I talk to you about it. So I'll tell you a story that happened yesterday. A person I talk to with a, with regularity, a person who lives on the East Coast, a colleague of mine, a friend and a colleague, having a conversation. We haven't talked to each other perhaps in six weeks, and um, she was ha- really having a, a difficult time. A, a, a number of things didn't happen right in her life. This thing fell through. This thing is difficult. This thing isn't working out. And something, a project that she really thought was going along really well suddenly has to be altogether redone. And she learned that in a kind of a peremptory way, and it upset her a lot. She said, you know, I I got so upset when I heard that news, I burst into tears and felt really ridiculous about it. But okay, I'm back to the drawing board. I'm doing it again. I should have seen that I I needed to do that, and I didn't see it. So we talked. And then she said, what are you thinking of all I'm telling you, because there's a number of difficult things happening in her life. And I said, I'm just, I'm just wondering about what you're doing to hold yourself in a place of compassion. And she said, oh, she said, that's a great thing to say. Uh, so I said, well, good. I said, you know, someone once said it to me years ago in a similar circumstance when I had been in a place of difficulty. And I also thought it was a great thing to say. So. I keep saying it to people. She said, that's a really great thing to say. She said, wait a minute, I have to think about that. And then she gave me an answer. So I just want to put a little sidebar on that because when I was thinking about it this morning and talking to you about it, um, there were two things I wanted to say. I wanted to tell you her answer for what she was doing and how that got around to talking about five spiritual faculties. But... I wanted to go back to thinking about why is that a great question to ask? Why does that question uh, feel good? Did it, does it seem to you that that's a good question? So we'll, we'll come around back to it because I want to leave that on the side. Why is it a good question? Other than it's got answers. Uh, so she said, well, you know, first of all, I keep telling myself everything is unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to be. This is what's supposed to happen. It's happening this way. So this must be what's supposed to happen. 
She said, I keep telling myself, I'll learn from this. And I keep telling myself it's going to pass. And she said, if I tell myself those things, my mind relaxes a little bit, and I see other possibilities. Okay, I'll go back to the drawing board. Okay, I'll do it again. I have hope. So we talked again about, uh, I, I know I've told you lots of times that the um, um, quote that I heard from somebody who heard it from Václav Havel, or heard it about him, that he had said it, but it had to do with the definition of hope, which stayed in my mind it's a, a, it, because I, I get it in such a concrete way. That Václav Havel said that the definition of hope was being able to say no, which doesn't sound like a actually a hopeful answer. I just bought someone a card in our uh, gift shop this morning for a graduation party this weekend that says, just say yes. I know, like, uh, well, this is the different card, to say yes, affirmative. Václav Havel is saying, just say no, and then you think, no, why is that hopeful? And they go on to say, what he said then is, it's the ability, hope is the ability to look at what's in front of you, know that it is a dire or an unfortunate or a grievous or an unhappy situation, and be able to say, no, this is not all that there is. This is what's here right now, but around the edges of this, if I back up, like in a Fellini movie, if I, if I roll my chair back, I will see that this is a stage set, and around it is a whole world with other possibilities. I just can't see them in this moment, because my mind has come down and focused in on what's here. So I'm stuck on this, but if I back myself up, I'll see that. So I got that. You got that, too. I could tell from looking at you. That back up and you can see, oh, there are other possibilities. This isn't going to work that way, but it'll work that way or that way. Or I can start again, or I'm still alive, or it'll be a possible. And the other things are possible. And when my friend said yesterday, you know, I tell myself, I could learn from this. Um, it's going to pass. First of all, it's going to pass. These are all sort of generic wisdom statements. It will pass. The first of the three characteristics of experience that the Buddha taught is it will pass. This is not going to last forever. Whatever it is, this breath will pass, this, this, this thought will pass, this illness will pass, this, um, this, this mood will pass, this life will pass. This day will pass, everything will pass, that um, once many, many years ago, I was teaching a class somewhere, I was down at Esalen, the story itself is too long, but I was teaching a class at which, it was, it was actually a, a week-long um, re- meditation retreat in mindfulness. And at the time, it was a particular technique of mine, I don't do it so much anymore, maybe because of this particular interchange, but uh, here I had four or five days to teach these assortment of people with various backgrounds a mindfulness meditation. So we spent a lot of time sitting and meditating, just as you and I did this morning. And um, I think I gave you the instruction this morning, notice how things arise and pass away. Did I say that this morning? Well, on this particular retreat, I was saying that a lot. I kept saying, Feel your breath in and breath out and breath in and breath out. Notice how the breath continually coming in, coming out. Notice the beginnings and ends of breath. Notice how 
just a breath begins and it passes away. And many times I said the phrase, everything that arises passes away. And I would say it about, the, did you notice about lunch, that when you went to lunch you probably had a big appetite, and then you're probably enthusiastic about the food, and then you probably started to eat the food. And at some point in the lunch you probably discovered that you didn't have any appetite anymore, and you're probably a little disappointed about that, because the food in this one is so great. You know, if you had an endless appetite, you just keep on eating it. But at some point, what was previously beautiful becomes, ugh, how did I get all this on my plate? And what am I going to do with it? So the appetite passes away, and the delight passes away, and the pleasantness of the moment passes away. It becomes unpleasant. How am I going to get this plate successfully into the recycle without everybody seeing that I took too much and feeling bad? And what kind of a terrible person am I that I took so much food and people don't have food to eat? And what a hog I am! And now my mind state is all wrong. So everything comes. So the delight of the eating is now in the undelight. And I'd say, just to notice that things change. Everything that arises passes away. I said that phrase about, I don't know, way too many times apparently for this one person. It's the, it's, it's the, that, that particular phrase is the next to the last phrase that the Buddha is said to have said in his life. That the, in the, in the sermon about where he's dying, at the end of it, he gives lots of instructions to the monks. And then he says, everything that is dying, passes away, or transient are all, um, transient are all um, conditioned things, which means everything that arises passes away, which means everything is temporal, everything passes. And then he said, strive on with diligence, and then he died, according to the sermon. So uh, one of the things that you learn when you're in teacher training, or when you're a student, actually, in, in learning to meditate is that you hear um, your teachers talk about the insights that the Buddha had and describe them in such a way that it inclines the mind in the direction of insight. You can't say to a person, listen, everything that arises passes away, and they say, oh, I got it, life is finite, now I love everybody, all the bars to loving are gone. Would that it happen that way? It doesn't happen that way, but theoretically, if one could, but if you can direct the mind, incline the mind, it's called, in the direction of insight, then suddenly people get an insight. Like when we sat this morning and you hear all these people dying, you know, it's life is short. Ah, oh, maybe I could get over that grudge. Anyway, that whole story I tell, I'm saying many times, inclining the mind, I think, everything that arises passes away. So we're sitting and meditating one afternoon and I'm giving the instructions for meditation, notice it, sit comfortably, feel the breeze. Feel your breath, notice uh, the breath comes in, breath comes out. Notice how breaths come and go. They just pass away. They arise out of nothing, they pass away. Everything that arises passes away in that nice way. I think it's a nice way. There's an anguished voice from one of the people there, uh, some man who said, why do you keep saying that? I can't stand it that you keep saying that. So I said, well, I keep saying it because it's true. But, you know, actually I felt a little bad, like I was the bringer of bad news. But uh, anyway, that's a whole long story to say that there are certain things that are just true. Everything that arises does pass away. If you hang on to things and insist that they be other than the way they are, there is suffering in the mind. That's just true. So the things that my friend was saying to herself, this is going to pass, it's unfolding because it has to. 
you know, this is the karma of this moment. It can't be otherwise. If I'm mad at it, I just make it worse. To she's telling me the three characteristics. She's I mean, she's a she's a Dharma teacher. She knows all these things. Three characteristics, four noble truths. If I hold on to it, if I insist that it'll be other than it is, I'll suffer. I could learn from this. Oh, very good. So I said, oh, look, that's great. Uh, I said, I'm thinking about both of those things. As you're telling it to me, you're telling me that what is allowing you to hold yourself in a place of compassion are both wisdom and faith. You know that those things are true. I mean, you know that those are true. And a certain amount of faith that they're true, they're not passing yet, but you have a faith that it will, that things will change. You, you know them and you have a faith that, the, that what you know is true. I said, so I said, that's great. That's wisdom and faith. She said, you know, if I think those things to myself, my mind feels better. It relaxes. When it relaxes, I think about things that I could do, right? input that I could do. I could make this different, that different. So I said, that's great. I said, you know, those are two of the five spiritual faculties. She said, oh, that's right. She said, you know, uh, because we we have lists in Buddhism, we have three characteristics and the four noble truths and the five hindrances and the six sense doors and the seven factors of enlightenment and the eightfold path. Somebody always bursts into a partridge in a pear tree at this point. <laughs> Ten paramitas. Um, I'm not sure nine of something. There's a book of numbers, actually, so there are nine. And there are five... Um, spiritual faculties. I think actually that there are all those numbers because, and lists, because they didn't write down what the Buddha taught for um, several hundred years at least. It was word, to ma- uh, word of mouth. And so people had to memorize. And still, if you listen to people, sometimes if you listen to uh, Burmese teachers, they teach um, uh, who are native to that culture, they teach in the manner of um, forest teachers of um, forever who didn't use a prepared text and didn't have books. And so they reiterate things over and over and over again as if they're reciting lists. So there are lots of lists which I think organize thoughts into the seven of this and the five of this. Actually, in the list of the five spiritual faculties in which wisdom and faith are two of them, Actually, if you see a formal list, they start with faith. And, and faith and wisdom and concentration and mindfulness and um, energy are the five spiritual faculties. And they're interesting because each of those shows up in other lists. Um, uh, wisdom is one of the paramitas. Energy is one of the paramitas. So in the list of ten paramitas, two of them are wisdom and energy. In the list of the five spiritual faculties, two of them are wisdom and energy. In the list of the five spiritual powers, they are the same as the five spiritual faculties, but they're what the Buddha taught becomes of the faculties when they're fully developed. If your wisdom is complete, it is unshakable. If your faith is complete, it is immovable. If your uh, concentration is completely uh, steady, then it becomes a power and it falls on every moment of your experience and changes it. It's very exciting to think about having those perfected. It would be like going around with an automatic um, 
Oh, what would be the right? A ray gun is not the right simile or metaphor. <laughs> let's say. Um, for a while, I was thinking of tuning kit, like a tuning, like a like a piano tuner comes to your house and got different five different kinds of instruments to tune the piano. Uh, that actually makes it sound too tinkering as well, because there's a way in which they coalesce together those five faculties to. Uh, take a situation in which the mind has become troubled and somehow straighten it out so it becomes untroubled. Uh, what could it be? Some sort of, uh, maybe a gyroscope would be, a, I don't know, component parts of a gyroscope. But when you think about it, those are strange five things to put together in a group. The, the, fi- the seven factors of enlightenment are seven different mind states. So you could say, okay, I could cultivate equanimity or, or tranquility or concentration or mindfulness or rapture or energy or investigation, all mind states. Or the, um, the paramitas, at least nine of them are things that you could practice. You could practice generosity or honesty or determination. <coughs> the only one of them that you can't actually practice, it's kind of a ringer in there, is wisdom. You can't get up and say, okay, today I'm going to be particularly wise. I mean, I use every opportunity to be wise. I mean, I hope so, but he wouldn't get up on any other morning and say, I'm going to, you know, forget it, I'm going to be unwise today. You know, it's a kind of a ringer in there. But, but these, are, these are a strange conglomeration of five because two of them you can practice. You can practice concentration. You could say, today I'm really going to have a day I'm going to keep the uh, no radio, no TV. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm going to do a lot of meditation in my living room. I'm going to look out the window. I'm going to sit and walk. I could concentrate on one thing at a time. I'm going to make a retreat day. You could really do concentration. I'm going to try to be one-pointed in my concentration. I'm just going to do this particular kind of concentration. You could take a day or a week or an hour and say, I'm going to do mindfulness now. I'm going to stay alert to every moment of changing experience and see what it is. So those are things you could practice. You say, wait a minute, let me be a little bit more mindful in this situation. You can't practice faith. I mean, I don't think so, do you? I mean, I think you either have it or you don't. Uh, Once, years and years ago, I, uh, I proposed, it was actually, I'm trying to think if this is a good story to tell. I think it's a good story to tell. You tell me afterwards if it wasn't. <laughs> it's so long ago, it's 30 years ago at least. I used to teach um, with some regularity for Dominican College. Um, I never was a full-time faculty there, but I would fill in for a semester when people were on sabbatical in the religion department, and I would teach weekend courses for them, one-unit courses. And I would teach religions of the world, or beginning Buddhism, or mostly religions of the world, and um, keeping a journal as a religious practice. And uh, one of the courses that, and so I, I was meeting with the dean of students once, and she said, "Well, we want to give this weekend course. It's a one-unit course. What would you like to teach?" I said, "Well, I'll, I'd like to teach um, a course called the Vicissitudes of Faith." She said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, you know, you don't always have the same." 
my experience is you don't always have the same level of faith. Sometimes it seems absolutely that faith is there, and sometimes it's not. And she said, I never had that experience. <laughs> so I said, really? I said, uh, why do you think? And actually, her answer was very interesting to me. She said, I don't know. She said, because I think I never doubted that my parents loved me. That was a really, I, you know, I, I've had that in my mind for 30 years. Is that a good story? You know, I thought I was going to get a big theological answer. But I never doubted that my parents loved me. That was interesting. I'm still carrying it around. I still don't figure it out. Um, I wonder whether the difference between the opposite of faith is doubt or the opposite of faith is confusion or distraction. Not sure. But of those five faculties, two are practicable, concentration and mindfulness. Two are uh, uh, qualities or capacities, uh, wisdom and faith. And one of them is energy, which is always changing, the amount of energy in the mind. But I think that they're connected to each other. For instance, my friend yesterday said, uh, I think that my mind relaxes. When it relaxes, I get a little bit of a hold of myself. I can breathe a little bit and can concentrate a little bit. I can concentrate a little bit. Concentration is actually the remedy for confusion in the mind, all the different kinds of confusions in the mind. When you can concentrate, there are five different flavors, actually, of confusion that, uh, that the Buddha taught, which, I, which we call the hindrances, but I, they're not Buddhist things. They're the kinds of things that confuse everybody's mind. Mind gets flurried up and challenged. It reacts, according to the Buddha, and in my experience, in predictable ways, according to people's personalities. Some people get anxious and start to worry. That's I tell you that first, because it's more my one. I know about that one more than anything. Um, when in doubt, worry is kind of a... a, a and you know, it's exactly... I mean, not everybody does that. I have friends who say, worrying doesn't do anything. You know, it's stupid to worry. Worry doesn't do anything. Everybody knows it's stupid to worry, that worry doesn't do anything. And that's why they feel more stupid when they worry. And it's embarrassing to have to say that I am a uh, chronic worrier. Anybody here thinks they worry excessively? Huh? Huh? No, you know what they admit least of all, Mark? I'll tell you the five, and you can tell me what people admit least. The five of them, the fancy names are lust, aversion, torpor, uh, uh, restlessness, and doubt. And I, I actually like to think of them as yearning, um, uh, uh, resenting. Because yearning is better than lust. Lust has such a uh, sinful sound about it. Uh, yearning, I need this. Whatever it is, I need this to make me comfortable. Resenting, this is better get out of my life, I hate it. Uh, torpor, uh, I can't do it, it's too hard. Um, what should we call this? Worrying. It won't be all right, I know it won't be all right. The worst is going to happen. And uh, a doubt, which I think is really hesitating. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. When I say that to people, people say, yeah, that's what happens to me. 
first of all, anybody doesn't know any of those feelings. You, you have all those feelings sometimes. Do you think you do one more than the other? Yeah. How many people think? Do you, I have show, surely told, told this story way too many times, so this is the last time for the new people. You can tell me last time. Who was here on the day that somebody came and said, my tires got stolen off my car? Do you remember that story? No? Okay. Someone came and said, my I, went, I live in San Francisco. I came down yesterday. My tires got stolen off my car. And my car standing in the street in front of my apartment building, no tires. And so so uh, I, I got all upset. I uh, walked to Stonestown, which is just two blocks from where I live, and I bought a pair of silk pajamas that I've been looking at in the window for a long time that I really wanted. And then I went home, and I called the police, and I called my work. And then, you know, I talked to the police, and I went to work. And somebody else said, I can't believe you did that. I said, I would have gotten so mad. I would have gone in, found the super of my building, given her a really bad time. Why aren't you watching the street? We should have signs. We should have plainclothes police people. What's the matter with you? you should, I, and then I would have gone to work, and I would have really given everybody in my work a hard time because I'm mad. I, I'm entitled to tell everybody else I'm having a bad day and be irritable with them. And somebody else said, you know what? thing like that happens to me, it just uh, does me in. I would have gone back in my house. I would have called my work. I would have said, look, I'm having a terrible morning. I can't come to work today. I'm no good for today. I have to be tied up with the police all day today. It'll take a million years to do the, the forms. I'll be in tomorrow. Just take care of my job. Somebody else said, um, I thought to myself, today the tires, tomorrow the car. <laughs> You seriously don't know this time? Nobody was here on that morning. It's a great story, I, honestly. It's a new generation of people. That's great. I can tell the story all over again. So why can you figure out that the fifth person said? fifth person said, once again, I have done a stupid mistake. I moved to this neighborhood. I should have known better. It's my fault. It's my, you know, I always do these stupid things. That, you know, so it comes out in terms of self-doubt. So I told that story once in some other venue. I was traveling, and I told that story. And somebody, when I got all finished, put up their hand and said, I don't get it. He said, I would have gone back in the apartment, called the police, filled out the forms, and go to work. That's all. They <laughs> said, why isn't that all right? I said, no, that's really all right. I mean, that would be great if we would do it. But let's, and let's say we would, all of us here, Let's just assume we would all of us go in the apartment, phone the police, phone the work, fill out the forms, and go to work, right? But if you had to play the part of one of those people, <laughs> and you could substitute for the pajamas, you could substitute, I went down to the corner and I got some coffee and a sweet roll. Chocolate. 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 I had a cigarette. Um, I called my best friend. I called my mother. Um, I mean, they're not all uh, they're not all unwholesome, unskillful things to do. It's not a bad idea to call your friend or your mother or whatever you've got to call. But I got some uh, I got some soothing for myself. I, I know how to I self soothe when I'm I self soothe. So here's I self soothe 
I get enraged, I uh, run out of energy, I start to fret, or I get filled with doubt and hesitation. I lose confidence and faith in myself and the world and everything. Okay, so who, if we had five support groups right now, <laughs> and you were going to be in the silk pajama group, hot chocolate group. Oh, look how many people are in that group. That's interesting. I'm just looking to see if we have any men in that group. Wait a minute, let's see. No men in that group. No men in that group. Okay. How many people in the I Get Mad group? Oh, quite a few people. Now men also. <laughs> How about I'd run out of steam? I, you know, I have to go to bed. <laughs> Not only that, Kel, you'd be in a room by yourself. <laughs> now we'd go keep you company because everybody else who in the worrying group coming up would be worrying about you all alone. How many people would worry, get frightened, start to think, uh-oh, this means something bad? How many people would lose confidence in themselves? So, there you go. What? what? We've got everybody. Here. We've got everybody. <laughs> what do you think? More, more people for silk pajamas. Let's see the silk pajamas again. <laughs> Definitely more self-soothers. I don't know. I think that's probably good. Uh, it makes the least impact on the community, I think. Um, Take care of some good work. Of course, it depends on the level of quality, of wholesome, of the of the soothing. You know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, the silk pajamas is all right. Hot chocolate is okay. What? I remember once when somebody drove uh, to my car and stole a whole group of things. And, you know, and I went through, and I think it's true for many of us. We probably go through lots of them. Yeah. But I saw what I did ultimately, which was actually more frightening for me because it felt so American. One of the things they stole was this down jacket that I'd have like 20 years ago and really attached to it. Yeah. I went out and I bought a slightly better down jacket to replace that one, which is self Yeah. So that when every time I wore that, um, I felt a little bit better. And then what happened to me, which is very interesting, was I began to do well wishing that my old jacket really worked well for whoever had it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because since I felt a little better myself, whoever was wearing that jacket was getting the benefit of it. I was getting the benefit of their having taken my old jacket yeah. by having a slightly better new one. And yeah. started, it was an interesting progression. It's a, not an interesting progression, David, but I think it's another way, I think it's a very skillful way to make oneself comfortable because it switches the mind from, you know, being mad at the person who took it is really wishing them well, you know. All, you know, every, every once in a while you read stories about so-and-so, the Zen monk who lived on a mountaintop by himself and came home and found that someone had come into his humble cabin and taken every single thing that he had out of the cabin and they's left with nothing. And he looks out the window and he sees a beautiful full moon rising and he says, I wish I could have given him the moon as well. You know, and they, uh-huh. <laughs> David says, uh-huh. <laughs> not, not up to the moon. <laughs> but I think the moral, the moral of the story is, may I be free of enmity and danger. I've been thinking of that so much that one of the things 
uh, the well, part of the story and part of part of what I'm hopeful you'll help me think about in these weeks to come. This is very helpful. Is uh, uh, when we had this conversation yesterday, my friend and I. Uh, she said, "This is great talking about those five faculties and how they all work together." She said, well, "Where can I look that up? Is there a book?" And I said, "Not yet." <laughs> but uh, she said, "There ought to be." I said, "I think so too." So we, uh, I am trying to think about how to write that. They're elusive to write about because here's one of the reasons that they're elusive. Suppose, here was one formulation that I thought of. Sometimes if I say to myself in any moment, say a moment is distressed, is distressing, and I really feel, uh uh-oh, I'm challenged in this moment, like you go out and you see the car and you think, ah, you realize it challenged. If I say to myself, can I love in this moment? No. You know, because in the moment of challenge, our ability to love, my ability to love disappears. I haven't got time to love anybody. I have to deal with my tires now. You know, the, you get into a self-preoccupied mode. It's as if, you know, when we talked before about Vassal Havel and that, the hope, that I, I have an actually quite a, like an architectural view of the mind. Like, uh, it's not a box. Like, there's a mind that's endless. My friend, uh, uh, Sharon Salzberg wrote a book called The Heart as Wide as the World. And I would like to use the words mind and heart interchangeably. That I don't think my mind is a box. You know, I think really when the mind's relaxed, it's as wide as the world. It can feel about people near and far and uh, care about them. It's not preoccupied in its own story. And then every time that I think that there's a startle that happens to us, I think it happens neurologically because we're animals, and there's anything that startles us and threatens the kind of peace that we feel, all of a sudden it's like, and we are in a box. And the mind has become a box where it is my mind my story, my car, my tires, my troubles, and all of a sudden my capacity to connect in some way. First, I can't even connect with my own self in compassion, which is another reason why I thought that was, that's why that question, what are you, what are you able to do these days to hold yourself in a place of compassion? So, oh, I could do that, couldn't I? I think the question itself, if I say to myself, can I love in this moment? Say, no, what do you mean love? Okay, wait a minute. So we have to fix this because I can't love myself either. You know, if I love myself, I can think, oh, sweetheart, look, you got startled. What do you want to do now? You want to go in and call the police and take a breath and go to work. This happens, things pass. Couldn't be other. The minute I think, sometimes I think if I were wise, I could love. I think if I could love, I'd be wise. You know, that it works the other way too. That that box that clamps itself around the mind precludes my remembering what I knew, like the palm of my hand, the moment before. Things pass, things happen. It's like this. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not about me. It's not that somebody walked down the street and said, "Ah, Sylvia's car." Now I'm going to really, you know. It's just one of those things. It was my car in that place, and a confluence of circumstances or whatever.
Rosemary, what? Um, as you were talking, I was thinking, I maybe it was the box that made me think about it, but we went to buy a TV about a year ago, and they were showing us the various models, and they said, oh, well, now here's this one where, you, you know, you get the whole screen, then you could get a little screen of another show going on, or you could even get two screens. And I, I thought to myself, well, why would I possibly want to watch three things at once? <laughs> <laughs> watch one thing at once? And I thought... Well, wouldn't it be kind of cool if our minds were like that? So we like had the big box, <laughs> but, the but then the little box maybe uh, is still the other side, the compassion of, or maybe the compassion of heart should be the big box with the little, little events happening in it. Actually, Rosemary, that's a great metaphor. Did you hear Rosemary's yeah, metaphor? Watch that show up somewhere because I actually think the little. <laughs> I, that is a, I attribute everything to Rosemary, so we'll all remember it's from Rosemary. But, because, but think about it, because I actually think that little box is my story. And that out here is everybody's story. If I could see everybody's story at the same time as I could see mine, first of all, I would see that mine is a pretty small story. You know, I mean, uh, at the same time, and I think this is really one of the key challenges of the spiritual life is that I don't feel directly the pain of somebody's story over here. You read a story in the newspaper, something dreadful happens to somebody someplace. You feel bad about it. It moves you, you know. Um, you really feel it because, you know, oh, if that happened to me, it would be terrible. But then you put down the newspaper, the phone rings, and it's not in your mind anymore. If the something terrible had happened to somebody, in your personal little box, and the phone rings, that doesn't go away. It's still here. And so the, 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 the issue, which I think is, is in the middle of spiritual practice all the time, is how to acknowledge our personal pain, not trivialize it or forget about it, or say, you know, everybody has this pain. Everybody does have this pain. But this one is my pain. You know, if I am the one person having this pain at this time, it hurts me in this mind and this body. And knowing that everybody shares it at some moment might be a consolation, but at this moment it doesn't matter. There's some people who have it in the world, some people who don't have it in the world, and I want to be in that community of people who don't have it in the world, you know. Maybe if every other person in the world, I don't even know if every... You know, do you remember that, that really, um, it's a wonderful scene in the, in the movie Miss Congeniality. Remember that? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's out on video. It's a not amazing, um, but actually, it's a state of my mind now for five or ten years. Uh, film was a movie about a, um, a beauty pageant. And it shows you all what goes on backstage in a beauty pageant. It's a, a dramatization of what it is. It isn't a real beauty pageant. But there's one person who wins. She is Miss America. Somebody else who uh, is the runner, somebody else gets a, an award for being the best person to work with. So they get the Miss Congeniality. So you know that Miss Congeniality is not really as beautiful as the Miss whoever it is in the way that you rank beauty. But in this particular film, uh, when it's coming down to the end contestants, 
You know how they get down to the end contestants? Everybody is paraded by, and then they're down to five or ten contestants. And they each play the flute or tap dance or do whatever it is that they do. And then they each of them have an, a one-on-one -on -one interview by the MC, who asks them, what, what would be your best wish in life? And one after another, they say, I wish for world peace. And then the woman who wins in this congeniality, they say to her, what do you wish for more than anything? And she says what she personally wishes for. I don't remember what it was, but probably it was a romantic connection with somebody. Or, you know, that's what everybody who's young is looking for, I think. So she says that, and uh, there's a hushed shock in the whole audience. And, and she can tell it, you know, the whole audience sit up like that. And she looks around, and she gets it, and she says, and world peace. <laughs> so, that's, that's, but, so that's the thing. We actually, all of us would like the end to world hunger and the end to world peace. But today, we would like for our grandchild with this illness to be cured and world peace. Yeah, yeah. And you know, someone came and said, you have one wish. You know, I don't know whether I wouldn't have to say I have to write it down privately so nobody sees. Maybe if it was really, if it was really, really going to make world peace, I hope. I hope I would do the world peace. <laughs> but I would feel bad about having missed my chance to do my grandchild. You know? I really would. Because I want my grandchild and world peace. I do. And so the little screen and the big screen, and it's a serious thing, Rosemary, because I don't think we can have like a... I think it's the personal connection that actually allows us to have that other connection. You know, I think sometimes you think about people who... Uh, uh, the notion that personal connections get in the way of your having widespread love for people. I'm, I, I actually don't think so. I think it's being bonded to certain people in ways of deep affection and connection that really is your connection to other people. A friend of mine a couple of years ago was diagnosed in midlife quite suddenly with really severe diabetes and to change his whole lifestyle. He's okay. Um, but his whole lifestyle had to change because now he has to be, there isn't going to be a day in the whole rest of his life in which he doesn't have diabetes. So he can live quite long. It's a genetic thing in his family, it happens. He can live quite long with diabetes, take good care of it. But all of a sudden, from one day to the next, the life gets different. I have a tremendously heightened awareness of diabetes since then. It's like I didn't know, I, I knew that there was diabetes in the world before that. I didn't think about it a lot. I think that happens with people, that, that there's one moment in which you get changed. Um, what are we going to say then? Well, I like the question that, that you asked because um, it, it forced the other person to look out of the box. Yeah. Which is another way of saying it. And so, and in that letting, looking outside a box, you let go of preconceived thoughts of what you think you have to have or whatever. And so it calls upon one's resourcefulness, which is infinite, mm -hmm. if we allow it to come mm -hmm. forth. And I think that's a real source of my delight when I am able to access resourcefulness. 
Mm-hmm. And whatever goes on there between that thinking process that allows that to happen is a really mm-hmm. uh, a state of grace in a way. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a we could call it creativity, whatever, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's uh, a I'm grace actually, and joy. I'm actually thinking it's a moment of mindfulness because uh, at that moment, you, you, your mind suddenly get unhooked from the preoccupation. So, oh, it's a startling question. What are you doing? Maybe that's maybe that's the the one piece we'll talk about now. Is this interesting to you? Because I want to carry it on for a few weeks now. Because when you ask a person a question, what are you doing to hold yourself in a place of compassion? You're first of all asking them to look for it, but you're also giving them a message that you should, that it is possible to hold yourself in a place of compassion. So, oh, I forgot to do that. The truth is, I often forget. Well, here, here are two things that come up in my mind simultaneously. I have another friend who has just gotten a very serious diagnosis. And uh, he said to me, uh, talking about his illness, which is now getting treated, he said, you know, it's the strangest thing. He said, I feel ashamed about being sick. You know? Like, he can't decide. You know, nobody purposely makes a plan to have cancer, you know? He said, but it's the strangest thing. I know that in my heart of hearts, I'm ashamed like other people don't have it. I have it. Now everybody has to take care of me. I'm a burden to people. It's, I know that I didn't mean to do it. You know, Lord knows I'd like not to have it, but I feel ashamed that there's something. When you say to a person, what are you doing? Whatever it is, so someone has told you their difficulty, and you say, what are you doing to hold yourself in a place of compassion? You're letting them know that they don't have to feel ashamed to have this problem, that they could be, that they could love themselves in it. That somehow, I, I notice a little bit, about, a lot about myself. I, I think I'm fairly um, ready to uh, really look with care on people who tell me they're in trouble for the, to try to make them feel better in one way. And I, when I don't feel well about something, give myself a hard time about something, it takes me a while. To re- if I'm sick, maybe, in my body, I realize, oh, this hurts me. What should I do to take care of myself? If I have a stomach ache or a headache or I got dizzy or something, I think, what remedy do I have to take? And I'd probably go and take that remedy. If my mind gets in a funk about something, I think I'm, it takes me a longer time to think, wait a minute. I'm telling myself a lot the story of what the mind is in a funk about. So-and-so said, so-and-so didn't say, well, that's stupid, Sylvia, you shouldn't be feeling bad about that. No, you should be feeling bad about that. Well, you could do this, you could do that. What I forget to say to myself is I'm in pain, the same as if I had a headache or a stomach ache or an earache. And what's the remedy for this? The remedy about this is not thinking about the story that happened. The remedy is realizing I'm in pain. What could I take? Maybe I could remember this will pass. Maybe I could remember this is the only thing that could be happening at this point. Maybe it could remember. I could think out of the box. I could learn from this. What did my friend say to me? This is going to pass. It couldn't be other. Um, I'll learn from it. She said, I'll make this my spiritual practice. I, I, I was really so proud. It was wonderful. To, to, you know, it's wonderful. You also have friends who will say that to you. Because here you are. You all say it to each other. We're learning this whole new vocabulary, aren't we? Of say, 
Somebody was going to say something right over here. Who was going to say? I thought. Were you going to say something, Shelley? I thought I saw somebody. It's almost eleven. We need to stop. The moment of mindfulness, I think, of you ask yourself, "What am I doing to hold myself in a place of compassion?" Say, so, "Oh, I could." In that moment, I think the mind stops. Say, "What could I do?" All right. First of all, I can remember that uh, I am sometimes happier. Not happy now, but I'm sometimes happier. This will probably pass. A happier place to be. A happier mind state is a possibility. I'm not there now. I could be there soon. How could I get to be there? Maybe that's enough. Sometimes when I ask myself, can I love in this moment? Sometimes I can. Just it, 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 It's like a, a magic password to... Uh, Unlock that grip in my mind. The mind has gotten into a grip of, can I love in this moment? No. Well, that's not a good way to live. Okay. Take a breath. Look around. Start now. Sometimes it's as easy as that. What I really want to develop is when it isn't as easy as that, what do you do? You take 10 breaths. You count on your fingers. 10 breaths, you calm down. 10 breaths. 10 breaths. Oh, here's an important thing to say. I have to say it in one minute. Ten breaths will concentrate the mind down. Twenty breaths will really concentrate the mind down. Concentrated mind has five components in it that are the antidotes to those five uh, confused mind states of lust and um, aversion, torpor, uh, restlessness, and doubt. It has five components that are the antidotes. The concentrated mind is calm, so it Calm, it um, erases worries and fretting. The concentrated mind has rapture in it, so it erases uh, aversion. Concentrated mind is one-pointed, so um, it stops yearning, because the yearning mind is looking around, what can I find to soothe myself? Pink, you know, new pajamas, hot chocolate, call my mother. Concentrated mind, you just, it, it just gives up looking for things to yearn for. Because it's just looking at one thing. It forgets there are things. It really, desire falls away is a fancy way to say it. Concentrated mind has the capacity to aim clearly at whatever is happening in the mind, see what's happening. If the mind can aim itself clearly, it wakes itself up from torpor. It gets energy back in it. And a concentrated mind has a quality of um, steadfastness in it, steadiness, which... Um, What's it called? Uh, sustaining. It has a quality of sustaining, which is the antidote to a doubt in the mind, which is a wobbly mind. So you can take 20 breaths, the mind concentrates down, it erases confusion. The fretting goes away, it erases fear. So the moment of mindfulness brings on the ability to concentrate. The, the ability to concentrate erases confusion. Confusion is erased. Usually you remember something like things pass. If I struggle, it'll be worse. I mean, the kinds of things that are the banal things that you get on fortune cookies suddenly are actually quite true. They do pass. Uh, I could be happier. I'm not happy now, but I will be. Um, I used to really feel this strongly. All of a sudden, I do again. Um, Maybe a deer walks by and you say, oh, it's all right to be in the life. Look at deers have deer have babies. 
or whatever it is that lifts up the mind. The, the, uh, the mind at that point is open for lifting. And then you get yourself back into shape again. I think that in life, uh, I would like to replace the idea of enlightenment, like you get to some steady state where everything is always all right, till you get to a state of faster returning. Like I, I, do you remember those Bobo, Bozo, what, what are those dolls, Bozo? Bobo or Bozo? You know, Bobo? Ruth? It's something like that. You know, those big dolls that you throw them, that, that you blow up, and then you knock them over and they stand up by themselves. So that's what I think it is. The mind keeps getting knocked over and then it comes back up again. Gets knocked over, comes back up again. Maybe spiritual power. This is so banal. The Buddha, if he were in a grave, would be turning over. But, uh, but the, but I think the difference between spiritual faculties, you have to work on it. Spiritual powers is it comes back by itself. Mostly, you know, if you wait a little bit, it comes back by itself. But I think it's very skillful to have things that you do. I think what's necessary for me is I have to know when I'm not in my right mind and in my right heart that I'm not. I think that the the key thing is intention. And that if I say, well, I'm not in a good place, then I start to, then the rehabilitation starts in by itself. I think the heart wants to rehabilitate itself. I don't feel good when I don't feel like me. And I'm in a snarly mood. I don't feel like, I don't feel good. I feel great when I, I'm in my best, when I am my best self. When you are your best, isn't it true? When we're our best selves, we wish well for everybody. Yeah. I think torpor is a lack of energy state, and uh, self-doubt is, uh, I think torpor is just, is just classically seen as lack of energy, uh, and that self-doubt is the kind of hesitation, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that, for which the um, antidote is um, decisive forward. I'll do this, and then if it doesn't work, I'll do something else, but I'm going to start, you know. Um, and uh, maybe it all has to do with what sign of the zodiac you're born in. It's everywhere. Take every opportunity to rejoice. Sing every birthday. Clap at every great performance. Cry at every graduation. Enjoy every moment that they get. What did Mary Oliver call it of this one wild and precious life? The old beings everywhere, really, use this time so that however long they have, it's well lived. May we share the generosity of our own spirit with the whole world in every possible way. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the well-being of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.